0: Hey everybody, and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies and Liquidware. If you enjoy the podcast each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. Microsoft have announced that Skype for Business Online will be retired on July 31st, 2021. Between now and then, current Skype for Business online customers will experience no change in service and they'll be able to continue to add new users as needed. However, starting September 1st, 2019, new Office 365 customers will be onboarded directly to Teams for chat, meetings, and calling. The press release suggests Microsoft are making this announcement now as they are confident that Teams is at a point that they are comfortable advising customers to migrate from Skype for Business Online to Teams. Microsoft have a few features available to help streamline migration from Skype for Business Online to Teams. I saw on Twitter some people were pretty annoyed by this announcement as they feel like they're being pushed towards Teams before they're ready. Certainly, if you're a CSP and you're selling Office 365 as part of your service, that means you really got to get on the team's train very quickly because September 1st is not very far away. BleepingComputer.com reports that Microsoft are investigating a bug which prevents Windows 10 machines using MIT Kerberos from booting up and in some cases sends them into a reboot loop. Although the article leads with Windows 10 in the headline, it looks like Windows Server 2016 and 2019 are also affected. You can figure out if your systems are potentially impacted by seeing if the following registry key exists. That's HKLM, Software, Microsoft, Windows, Current Version, Policies, System, Kerbos, MIT Realms. Microsoft are working on a resolution for mid-August, and in the meantime, advise not installing the updates that cause the issue. If you're on the audio-only version of the podcast, I have a list of the Windows Update KBs in the YouTube version of this episode, which is episode 83. You can find that on 5bytespodcast.com, or alternatively, just go to the reference links to find this story and see that list for yourself, which you'll probably want to do to get that registry to unless you've got a mind to quickly parse through registry keys and find that Microsoft sign tool that those experienced with AppX and UWP should be very familiar with has been updated as part of Windows Insider SDK 18495 these changes will allow sign tool to interact with device guard signing to remotely sign packages specific to your Azure AD tenant A user can be enabled with signing permissions and can then authenticate with their Azure AD identity and sign their packages. And obviously, this will apply to MSIX packages too. To deploy packages, you will need to deploy an intermediate certificate to your devices so that it will trust the apps being signed. You download this certificate from the Microsoft Store for Business portal. You can easily deploy this certificate with SCCM Intune or via scripting or any other management product really to your device's root store. The certificate is specific to your Azure AD tenant, so it won't enable other enterprise apps to be deployed. If your users are working across multiple Azure AD environments, then just add the certificate for each tenant to enable the apps to install. Google and VMware have announced a partnership today to make it easier for VMware customers to run their workloads on Google Cloud Platform. The solution was actively developed by a company called Cloud Simple. So it wasn't actually developed by VMware or Google themselves, but they're partnering up off the back of it. This is a smart move for both VMware and Google. Azure and AWS are already ahead of them on this, but there's no real shame announcing this now. It gives customers more options for where to run their VMware workloads. And with Google Cloud Platform's pricing point, this could well turn some heads. My buddy Andrew Morgan had a great blog post a couple of weeks ago, which, which I only just read this week because I procrastinate like that. Sorry, Andrew. He had a unique customer requirement. They wanted to grab a copy of an instant clone for doing forensics. And that is obviously a VMware instant clone. By its nature, with constant churning through and creating new clones, it could be hard for forensics to be completed. Once a user logs off, their state is sent to the fiery upside down world. And Andrew actually used an analogy of uh, Mr. Meeseeks from Rick and Morty. Andy came up with a way to get the customer what they needed and goes into great detail complete with the demo on how it was achieved. What I found interesting in the course of reading the article is that VMware have made the clones much less dependent on the parent VMs than in previous versions of VMware Horizon, which is a very welcome change. I'll share a link for that post with this week's episode on FiveBytesPodcast.com under reference links for episode 83, And you'll more than likely find it in the description field of whatever podcast platform you use to listen to this episode. The Wall Street Journal have reported that hackers have accessed the personal information of approximately 106 million Capital One card customers and applicants in what is now the largest ever data breach of a big bank. The data includes names, addresses, dates of birth, and self-reported income that spans from 2005 to early 2019. The report also suggests up to 140,000 social security numbers and 80,000 bank account numbers may have also been compromised. The data was stored on AWS. The suspect, who has been arrested in connection with the breach, is reported to have worked at AWS between 2015 and 2016. It has been speculated that this breach could cost between 100 to $150 million for Capital One. There is no evidence that the data has been used, but it is said the suspect had intent to post the data online. Apparently, the suspect boasted online about the theft of data which alerted law enforcement and allowed them to quickly act. The infiltration, or the grab of the data, or the theft of the data, reportedly occurred back in March. From how the article reads, it seems the suspect may have known how to access the data from their time working at AWS, but that seems kind of speculative and just putting two and two together based off of their CV and the fact they work there. If that is indeed the case, it could raise a need for these cloud providers to scrutinize potential employees more than they do today. Regardless, an investigation is underway and hopefully they release some more information as they get it. Another week in another Slack story. This time it was a bad news story. Slack was down for some people on Monday and based on reports from users, it looks like it lasted for over an hour. Slack made a change that inadvertently caused some performance issues, including messages failing to send. Some customers had trouble accessing their Slack workspaces entirely. They identified the cause and reverted the change which led to the problem, and that resolved the issue. The Hacker News published details this week of a mining malware botnet which includes a module that scans the internet for Windows RDP servers vulnerable to Bluekeep, which is, of course, the major RDP vulnerability that we all likely had to frantically patch against a couple of months ago. Hacker News reports that more than 800,000 Windows machines that are accessible over the internet still have not been patched for Bluekeep. I may be a little naive here, but to me, this kicks things up a notch for Bluekeep. If you haven't patched yet, you better get on it. ZDNet has reported that some of the Georgia Department of Public Safety's back-end servers that are used to service the police officers' onboard laptops have been infected with ransomware. It's reported that an officer first saw a message on a laptop and it quickly spread within the department. And they reacted by taking services like email, public websites, and back-end app servers offline to contain the infection. Officers have now gone back to using radios or work phones to request desired information. Which is much like how police officers in the U.S. used to work in the 80s, or sadly how the Irish Gardaí currently work in Ireland in present day. I wish the best of luck to them getting back online and securing their data. Malware Tech Blog on Twitter, the man who helped stop the spread of WannaCry by registering a domain that acted as a kill switch to stop the malware in its tracks, was sentenced this week for his part in developing and selling malware. Now I refer to him by his Twitter handle and I have yet to address him by name on the podcast as originally when he was getting a lot of positive attention for stopping WannaCry, he wished that he was not receiving that attention and didn't really want his name to be out there. If you've listened to the podcast from the beginning, then this is hopefully the closing chapter on a story that I've covered quite a few times over the last year and a half. I've been reporting on updates on his case as it was underway. He was sentenced in the end to time served so will not face any additional prison time. If you haven't followed the podcast, you would have heard me cover the fact that he pleaded guilty several weeks ago, so a lenient sentencing like this is not all that surprising. The judge also took into account many character references submitted by others in the security space and the fact that he has been contributing so positively to the community with educational content on how to reverse engineering malware as an example of that. The judge who seemed to have a pretty good overarching sense of technology maybe and where things stand at the moment actually made a statement that was quite complimentary of him suggesting that we're going to need people like him working as a force of good. It's looking like he will need to leave the US and likely won't be permitted entry in future. He has been in the US for the last two years while awaiting this to conclude and has a strong network of friends there and it seems like it would be his preference to stay but it certainly doesn't seem that likely. The Verge has reported that Apple have signed on as a partner on the data transfer project which aims to make it easier to transfer data from one service to another. The data transfer project has mostly consisted of back-end coding to make data export tools like Google Takeout and Facebook's Access Your Information tool compatible with each other. The project was launched last year and to date has focused mostly on the back-end rather than on the consumer front-end side of things. But it is hoped customers will be able to avail of tools to do things like maybe export all of their pictures off of their Facebook timeline our Facebook page, and then import them into Google Drive or other services such as that. It's also promising that these companies are investing in making it easier for customers to access and move their own data. And now the weekly webinar. Lee Jeffries and Jake Walsh will be holding a CugC webinar titled, Buy Smart Scale, Hello Power Scale. If you're running a hybrid scenario with session servers in a cloud environment, but not using the Citrix cloud service, this webinar is for you. Citrix discontinued SmartScale just this March, replacing it with AutoScale, but currently only for Citrix cloud subscribers. Thus, customers running on-prem or using another cloud provider need another solution, which is where the community-driven PowerScale tool helps to fill that gap. In this webinar, you'll learn how PowerScale can be configured as a replacement for SmartScale in hybrid cloud scenarios, and they'll run through what the tool does, how to set it up, and some common configuration options. I'm actually currently working on a Citrix Cloud hybrid deployment right now, so this is perfect timing for me. If you want to catch that webinar, it's going to be held on Thursday, August 8th, from 1 p.m. Eastern to 2 p.m. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Kevin Kamansky shared a really great overview and tutorial of using Microsoft Message Analyzer to view the Windows Update Client Activity as it happens. I found this interesting because in an environment I worked in, I've had intermittent issues when trying to manually patch some servers. I know I know I should be automating patching but there's a few outlying servers that I just need to do manually. The majority are being patched automatically so don't judge me. The default logs and error messages with the Windows Update UI are very vague so it makes it very hard to figure that stuff out just from the errors. Some issues like this with the Windows Update client to the Windows Update service online can be hard to pin down, and they can often be within the network layer. A tool like this should give a greater insight than what I have been using personally, and the fact that it's showing in real time is gonna add a lot of value. It's pretty sweet. I'm sure the tool will come in useful for some other Windows services too. And if you're often stuck in the weeds, troubleshooting issues within your environment, this is another one to add to your tool belt. And finally, Thomas Maurer also shared a handy blog post on how to add drivers to a Windows Server 2019 ISO using PowerShell. And this one was actually pretty good timing for me too as I'm rebuilding my home lab now that I've moved back home to Ireland. And since I'm rebuilding, I'm taking the time to upgrade from Server 2016 to Server 2019. So of course, it's going to be that slow, methodical process of my hardware Predating the release of 2019, figuring out which ones will support Server 2019, finding the right drivers, possibly extracting drivers because the installer won't work and then just, ugh, you know, I'm sure you've all been through it before. But having this PowerShell capability to just inject them into the ISO will hopefully help me safeguard myself and make the thing a lot quicker in future when I have to rebuild my lab. And finally, the kickoff of the first match for the FA Premier League is right around the corner. So this is probably going to be the second last time I mention this on the podcast. But I am running a fantasy Premier League competition. The winner will get their jersey of choice. And I'm also doing some spot prizes, such as for the person who chooses the best team name. I'm going to put out a SurveyMonkey link to allow people to vote on what they think is the best team name, and then that person is going to win probably an Amazon voucher. If you're into it and you're going to create a team anyways, why not just go to my link, sign up, you'll get my league code, and then you can join the league and be in with a chance of winning. And that's it for another week. Thank you all so much for listening.